So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Erica Herschler is Kroll Senior Curator of American Paintings at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, as many of you know. She received her undergraduate degree from Wellesley College and a PhD from Boston University and joined the staff of the museum here in Boston about 30 years ago. I think it was 1902, was that it? <laughs> I should talk, but. Uh, since that time, Erica has become one of the most respected scholars and curators in the field of the history of American art. While her knowledge and expertise is wide, Dr. Herschler's particular focus has been American artists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And she's curated exhibitions and contributed and written monographs on a number of them, including Mary Cassatt, Dennis Miller Bunker, John Singer Sargent, Edmund Tarbell, James McNeil Whistler, and as we will soon learn, Child Hassam. Currently, Dr. Herschler is working on a major exhibition of the paintings of William Merritt Chase, which promises to be as illuminating and groundbreaking as all of her other exhibitions and publications. Today, however, we celebrate the publication of Dr. Herschler's latest book, Child Hassam at Dusk, Boston Common at Twilight, which is available for sale out in the uh, lobby. This is it. This is one of a series of sharp, focused publications being produced by the Museum of Fine Arts. The book makes a close reading and tells the story behind, well, let's let our expert speaker, disting distinguished scholar, and I'm happy to say good friend, Erica, tell us all about it. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming Dr. Erica Hirschman. Thank you all so very much for being here. It's, it's really something when David says that 30 years, I, I have to tell you, working in climate control is a fabulous thing. Doesn't just preserve the paintings. Today, we're going to look together at this picture, which I know most of you have seen hanging at the Museum of Fine Arts. Let me describe it for you. It's only a few minutes after four, but the sun is disappearing rapidly, leaving the sky a radiant orange pink that eclipses the ruddy brick buildings and transforms them into hulking shadows save for the occasional glow of a shop window or the reflected sheen of the dying light. The street lights along Tremont Street have started to brighten. Everything is moist and suffused with red. It's damp and cold, the trodden snow slippery underfoot. The girls insist on feeding the birds, really just a host of city sparrows, but the children seem determined to offer them some crusts. The smaller girl, timid, hangs back, chilled and less convinced. The woman reaches forward to gather up her charges and get them home, 
into the warmth and away from the crush of streetcars and their spill of passengers, a group of them now marching along the promenade, enjoying their cigars and the sting of the frozen air before heading inside to whatever domestic bliss or affliction awaits them. <laughs> With this scene imprinted on his memory, Child Hassam turned around and headed up the block to his studio. I set myself the project to learn the story of this painting, to ascertain the various ways in which it was both traditional and modern, and to see how it fit into Hassam's career and into the history of the city of Boston. And I learned that both Hassam and the city that he portrayed in this beautiful picture in 1885-86 were at mo moments of transition. Hassam from a magazine illustrator and pastoral watercolorist to an ambitious painter and a chronicler of the modern scene. Boston was changing too from a Yankee enclave of stately brick and granite row houses to an eclectic and increasingly diverse commercial center led by its first Irish mayor. Hassam's painting projects a very calm, elegant charm, but nevertheless, it does reflect all of these shifts in the urban fabric, including the city's crowds of workers and shoppers, new ideas about appropriate social behavior for women, modern developments in public transportation and lighting, and the constant frenetic building campaigns that were remaking the streets around the Boston Common. Let's start with Hassam himself, who you see here in a photo that was taken some years later in about the 1890s. Hassam was at the very beginning of his career when he painted his carefully observed view of Boston Common at twilight. And in fact, his studio was just around the corner on West Street. So this scene would have been extremely familiar to him. As some of you probably know, Hassam was born in 1859 and raised in Dorchester, Massachusetts. He was the son of Frederick Fitch Hassam, a merchant, and his wife, Rosa Hathorne Hassam. Frederick Hassam was a cutler. He manufactured high-quality razors and knives, joining his brother Roswell Hassam in business on Washington Street. And among the things they did was supply Bowie knives to Union soldiers during the Civil War. And I'm showing you here the listing from the Boston Directory and also one of the Hassam brothers' knives stamped with their name. Both of Hassam's parents were very proud of their New England lineage. Frederick Hassam, in fact, collected historic American furnishings. And Child Hassam later remembered making his first sketches of an old-fashioned coach that his father had uh, kept in the family barn. Hassam showed an early aptitude for drawing during his public school years. And in the late 1870s, after failing to thrive as his, at his first job as an accountant, in a local publishing firm, he turned to art as a profession. In 1876, 
He began to study with a wood engraver in Boston and worked as an illustrator for magazines and advertisements. Had an early career that's very similar, in fact, to Winslow Homer's. And I'm just showing you here a view of wood engravers working at the lower right, and at the top, just a pile of illustrated magazines. Uh, this was the golden age of American illustrated press with many, many illustrated journals. And the pictures they contained were, in fact, an important source for some of Hassam's early themes. The young artist also studied anatomy and figure drawing, although, to be honest with you, he was never that great at it. And among the earliest examples of his work, is the title for the Marblehead Messenger, that view of the city of Marblehead from the um, harbor, which I think is still on the paper, um, was designed and drawn by Hassan. At the bottom, you see one of his earliest book illustrations for Ernest Shirtliff's When I Was a Child, which was published in Boston in 1886. He also worked in watercolor, and here are two early examples, the one on the top from the Worcester Art Museum and the one on the bottom in a private collection. Uh, he made mostly scenes of Nantucket and rural New England, which he displayed and sold at a local art gallery. And you can see in this early work the same dark palette and interest in rural subjects that mark the work of, for example, the French Barbizon School, which was so popular in Boston at exactly this time. In 1882, Hassan felt comfortable enough to change his listing in the Boston City Directory from draftsman to artist. He traveled to Europe for the first time in 1883 and made a tour to both London and Paris, then traveled across the continent, although we're not sure exactly what he saw and what he did there. It's often been said that Hassam developed his interest in scenes of modern life when he was in Paris and London. But when he came back to the United States, he turned his attention to painting the past, timeless rural scenes and historic buildings in and around Boston. I'm showing you now two European scenes of the type he exhibited when he came home from Europe on the top a view of Venice and at the bottom right a view of the Esplanade in Dunkirk from 1883. But this is the sort of thing that he did after that trip. On the left, his Fairbanks house in Dedham from 1884 in the MFA's collection, and on the right, a painting from the same year called The Back Road in the Brooklyn Museum collection. The Fairbanks house had been built in 1636. It was all already very famous as a historical landmark, and it was published in a popular book called Homes of Our Forefathers. And it was one of many images Hassam made of important survivors of New England architecture. And his interest in making scenes like that coincides very much with Americans' new interest in architectural preservation. I'd remind you that the Hancock House in Boston had been demolished in 1863 to great outcry. But then the 1876 Centennial Exhibition the saving of Old South Church here in Boston in 1877 made the historic preservation movement come uh, to popular attention, and images like these were increasingly popular. 
1894, one writer said that the Fairbanks house, for example, was, and I quote, overrun with devotees of the easel and sketching block. And Miss Fairbanks, the descendant who still lived in the house, had, and I quote, trouble keeping the dooryard clear of these budding Raphaels. You can see in the image on the left how Hassam emphasizes the mass of the house, how it rises from the hillside and almost seems to be a part of the landscape, timeless. The figure in the foreground could be contemporary or she could be from the moment that the house was built. And we see this kind of work uh, in several Boston painters at the upper right, uh, a local favorite, somebody just mentioned to me this morning, John Enneking, whose roundy house on the uh, Neponset River, you see it upper right from about 1890 in the MFA's collection, and at lower right, a work by Winslow Homer called Feeding Time from the 1870s. So these old-fashioned subjects very much in vogue. And they, of course, resonated with the French works of the Barbizon School, like Jean-Francois Millet's Priory at Vauville, Normandy, which you now see on the right from 1872 in the MFA's collection. The ultimate source for looking at rural architecture like this is still Millet, but it Americanizes that French style, taking different rustic subjects, but maintaining the dark palette the direct technique and the distaste for very complex historical narrative. Well, the 67 watercolors that Hassam displayed at Boston's Williams and Everett Gallery in 1884 consist almost entirely of European village street scenes and picturesque rural vistas, the ones he had painted the year before, like the Dunkirk view that you see again at upper right. But one watercolor in the group of 67 points to a new direction in Hassam's art. For slipped into the exhibition checklist between a Spanish town by the sea and Tower of San Marco in the Doge's Palace was a new subject. Boston Street, Beacon Street, and the Public Garden, which might be the watercolor that you now see at lower right, now in a private collection. It probably at least looked something like the one on the right. And I've been trying to put two and two together with the point of view of this watercolor and trying to make it fit Beacon Street and not quite coming up with it. So uh, I think the jury's out on that. You know how people who aren't from here like to call everything what they like to call it, whether it's right or wrong. In 1884, that same year, Hassam married this woman, Catherine Maud Doan. This is uh, his image of Maud sewing in bed, a particularly beautiful watercolor in the collection of the St. Louis Museum. Uh, Maud Doan was the daughter of a photographer and an artist. 
And that year, they moved into this building, the Arbemarle Apartment Building in Boston's newly expanded South End. The building stands uh, today on the corner of Columbus and Clarendon Street. It was built in 1876 in a very modern style that was called French Flats, which means that it was apartments where everything was on a single floor instead of being an up-and-down arrangement. And from that location on Columbus Avenue, Hassam began to paint his own surroundings. You see two examples here. Rainy Day, Columbus Avenue at the top left from the Worcester Art Museum, and Columbus Avenue, Boston at lower right from the Courier Museum, both of these from 1885. And both of them made from the vicinity of the Hassam's home. Looking northeast, towards the illuminated clock tower of the Boston and Providence Railroad Depot in Park Square, which is what that is. Um, so um, what really captured Hassam's attention was not only this architecture, but also the way it looked, mostly in adverse weather conditions. <laughs> or as Hassam wrote, the street, by which he meant Columbus Avenue, was all paved in asphalt, and I used to think it very pretty when it was wet and shining and caught the reflections of passing people and vehicles. I was always interested in the movements of humanity in the street, and I painted my first picture from my window. Well, that subject matter of urban life in the modern city was one of the favorite themes of the French Impressionists, although Hassam's palette is quite different with its dark red rust tonalities. You can see here again in this picture. Um, and uh, it's much more Barbizon in its tone and its outlook than what we see in works by artists like Pizarro or Kayabat, who we'll look at in a second. This is Hassam's Rainy Day Boston from 1885 in the collection of the Toledo Museum. And other than the MFA's picture, which we're uh, going to go into in depth, this is the most famous of Hassam's Boston street views. It's a wonderful document of the transformation of Boston during this period with its new broad boulevards, its French-inspired architecture of lined-up mansard roofs, and the expansion of public transportation. You can just make out a yellow streetcar right here. The neighborhood had only been developed between 1870 and 1880, so everything here really was brand new. And Hassam's image celebrates that modernity, that broad boulevard with ample room for carriages, for horse-drawn trolleys, the well-dressed pedestrians, the innovative asphalt pavement, the relentless recession of similarly styled, very new buildings. Critics responded that Hassam had made great beauty out of, and I quote, silent piles of brick and stone houses whose facades look so moist and grim. Here's the exact spot. This is the intersection of Columbus Avenue at West Canton and Appleton Street. And the only um, building that is really exactly the same as the one smack in the middle of the composition, now blocked by trees. 
Hassam's city scenes have often been compared directly to the work of the French Impressionist Gustave Caillabotte, whose Paris Rainy Day from 1876 in the collection of the Art Institute of Chicago you see here at the bottom. But despite those stylistic similarities, um, Caillabotte's painting is much more modern, really, with its flat and decorative forms and its cropped figures. And Hassam is very unlikely ever to have seen it. Caillabotte's Paris Street was shown in the third Impressionist exhibition in 1877 in Paris, when Hassam was not in Paris. And it received a lot of notice in the French language press, but then it disappeared from public view until Caillabotte's death in 1894, after Hassam had painted this picture. He's much more likely to have been influenced by this kind of art. Painters of the so-called juste milieu, the in-between painters, who were neither as modern as the French Impressionists, nor as conservative as the salon painters of the day. And he certainly would have been uh, very familiar with Prince through his own work as an illustrator. What I'm showing you here, Hassam's view at the top, in the middle at left, a French etcher named Félix Buot, who shows the winter morning on the Quai Hôtel de Dieu in Paris in the 1870s, something more widely reproduced. At the right, one of these juste milieu painters, Giuseppe De Nittis, uh, an Italian painter who worked in London and Paris. This is his view of Piccadilly in London in 1875 at the right. And at the very bottom, a stereograph of Old South Church. So I remind you that while Hassam claimed that using photographs was not part of his artistic practice, surely his eye was informed by them, particularly these ubiquitous city scenes and stereoscopes which often employ a wide open foreground and a similarly rushing sense of perspective. So all of these works lead us to our main event, uh, painting we know as Boston Common at twilight, but which Hassam actually exhibited as at dusk. Rush Hour, Tremont Street, 1885, the same year that Henry James published his novel, The Bostonians. And you see this contrast between the hustle and bustle of lights and streetcars on the left with the snow-laden calm park at right. The dramatic perspective is marked off with trees, benches, fence posts, all of them accelerating in their rhythm and their spacing as you recede into the depths of the composition, in a way accentuating the rhythm of the modern city. The dull twilight palette is enlivened with flickers of orange, and Hassam is fascinated with different kinds of light, and he uses them all here, artificial light, natural light, even the lit end of this gentleman's cigarette, which you might not be able to see in the slide, but next time you come to the MFA, you look for it. So where are we exactly? Right here, about a block and a half from where you sit. This is um, uh, Hassam's point of view, and here in another map with an X marking the spot and the point of view marked with an arrow. So he's standing on Tremont Street, just where it straightens out, somewhere between West and Avery Streets, and he's looking towards Boylston. 
here in a slightly different orientation is an older map from 1883, again with the point of view indicated by the X and the arrow. Well, what was that area like in 1885? Well, this map reveals that the architecture was entirely different than what we see today. These insurance maps tell you what the buildings were made of, and they also tell you the owners' names. This one gives even more detail, showing us building materials, mostly brick, with blue uh, indicating an iron facade. So it turns out that the neighborhood that Hassam was depicting was one of the most changeable and mutable in Boston. It had changed very rapidly by the time he made this picture, and it would change again many times over. Well, our first glimpse of it shows up in one of the early maps of Boston. This is the William Price map from 1743. Here we are looking that way. Tremont Street, of course, as many of you know, is one of the earliest roads in Boston, first recorded in 1635, and named for the three-peaked ridge that occupied the original uh, center of the Shawmut Peninsula on which Boston was built. By the middle of the 18th century, as you can see in this map, the basic configuration of the street Hassam depicted had already been set. It began at the center of the peninsula, just at the foot of the Tremont, the Three Hills, and changing its name from Tremont to Common Street, continued southwest along the edge of the Common, which by that time, as you can see on the map, already had a promenade with a double row of trees. At the time of the American Revolution, the British troops made their entrenchments behind that esplanade of, of trees. You can see them marked here on this map and the detail at lower right. And they put up multiple fortifications in just this spot. But the mall and its trees survived the war, and the few wooden Georgian mansions that were once across the street passed from royalist to patriot hands. By 1810, some of those wooden houses had been replaced by a distinguished suite of brick townhouses designed by Charles Bullfinch architect of the Massachusetts State House and one of the most important visionaries to plan Boston's development during the uh, federal period. The new block, which you see here in an old photograph, was called Colonnade Row, and it consisted of 19 four-story houses, each with four columns supporting a second-story ironwork balcony with an ornamental balustrade painted white along each roof. Some of the uh, buildings have lost their balustrades by the time this photograph was made. The houses weren't identical in width or in decoration, but they did present an elegant and uniform appearance along the length of the block. And they attracted the most distinguished of residents, uh, mostly merchants and lawyers, of course. The inhabitants could look out their windows directly across to the Tremont Street Mall, now defined by three rows of trees. The street was residential, the main business district still several blocks away to the north and east towards the harbor, and there were no streetcars and little traffic. But one of the city's most notable parades, which I hope you all know about from last uh, uh, season's wonderful Lafayette exhibition, 
one of, when Lafayette came to Boston in 1824, he marched right along Colonnade Row, where he offered a salute to John Hancock's widow, Dorothy, who was watching from one of those balconies. But soon, the harmony was broken with new construction. This is the Evans House a five-story mansard-roofed Italianate brownstone erected in 1859-60 and expanded in 1866. Even at its modest height, it towered over the extant row houses, and it had stores on its ground and second floors that hastened to shift along the street from residential to commercial. By 1865, the Evans House was advertised as a residential hotel, pleasantly situated, according to an 1881 guidebook, with elevator service and all modern improvements. It was especially favored by actors who appreciated its proximity to the theaters one block back on Washington Street. It also housed the influential Boston Cooking School, which offered classes there beginning in 1879, 20 years before their famous alumna, Fanny Farmer brought it everlasting fame. Up the street in the opposite direction were, two, uh, were these two buildings, both important Boston cultural establishments. On the left, Horticultural Hall in its uh, second location, built in 1865 of white granite in a very exuberant style, covered with urns and statuary by Martin Milmore and across Bromfield Street, the studio building, described in one guidebook as a perfect hive of artists. Many of the city's best-known painters and sculptors had studios there where they not only worked but also um, held exhibitions in, the, in a space called Alston Hall. It was really the artistic hub of the city. Continuing down the block, we find St. Halls, its severe Greek revival facade completed in 1820 and today the only building that survives, embellished now with its blue nautilus shell. And next door to it, this semi-Gothic confection, which you see on the right, which was built by architect Isaiah Rogers to house the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. The Masons moved out in 1857 they sold the building to the federal government, and it became the United States Courthouse. But in 1885, the feds moved out, and R.H. Stearns and company moved in, and it became a department store. The Masons moved up the street to the corner of Tremont and Boylston, taking over a few um, floors in the Winthrop House Hotel, which was gutted by fire in 1864, and the Masons had to rebuild, this time a purpose-built granite structure, seven stories, Gothic, anchoring the corner of Boylston and Tremont. Um, what's interesting is you can just see bits not exactly to um, faithful proportion of this building at the very end of Hassam's view of Tremont Street. But um, he wasn't extremely faithful. He was not an architectural illustrator. And so we can just imagine most of these buildings because, of course, he generalizes to make his view more atmospheric. 
And speaking of atmosphere, sparkling through the trees, we can see another architectural innovation, and that is the Hotel Pelham, which was a modern six-story freestone structure built in 1857. Again, apartments and moved while occupied 14 feet to the west when Tremont Street south of the Common was widened in 1869. The Pelham was the greatest engineering feat of the age. But it also marked a very new way of living because this was uh, the city's first purpose-built apartment building and it is likely it was the first purpose-built apartment building in the United States. So, as you can see from these views of Tremont Street, and as one writer had already put it in 1869, Tremont Street's quiet and beautiful homes are fast giving way, block by block, to the march of improvement. Does this sound familiar to you? And with the horse cars in front and the numerous stores that are now being established here almost from month to month, this hitherto sedate and handsome neighborhood is being rapidly converted into what a few years at the farthest must prove to be one of the busiest and noisiest thoroughfares in the heart of the city. You can see a variety of businesses here in this um, etched view at the top, sewing machine companies, instrument manufacturers, dental um, supply stores, and most notably at the middle, which you can also see in the stereograph, the home of the Boston Conservatory. Well, why was all this thing, so much development happening? For one thing, the city was expanding rapidly and there were new neighborhoods where everybody wanted to live. The construction of the Back Bay had begun in the fall of 1859, and by 1882, the project had been completed as far west as Charlesgate. I'm showing you here a, a, a wonderful photograph that shows you how these buildings were not built out in order along the avenues, but were built instead mostly um, either on the behest of different clients who wanted houses out here or else on speculation. And the effect on older parts of the city was considerable as many residents fled the increasing commercial development downtown and moved to these new houses of the Back Bay. According to William Dean Howells in his uh, Rise of Silas Lapham, published in 1885, again the year Hassam's painting was made, the sign of ultimate social success was a house on the waterside of Beacon Street. The other thing that happened, of course, was the disastrous fire, which hastened the shift away from the historic center of Boston in November of 1872, when the landfill of the Back Bay barely extended past Exeter Street. It was a 15-hour blaze that destroyed 700 buildings and devastated 65 acres. And you can see the burnt-out district in the pink at the lower right and a photograph of the ruins at upper left. Businesses were fairly quick to expand and rebuild, taking over areas of the city that had once been residential, including parcels on Tremont Street, which as you can see from the map is in fact pretty close to where uh, the fire stopped. So what else does Hassam show us besides architecture that's modern? Well, his street is lined with horse cars. 
the traffic has become stopped. It's at a complete halt with one streetcar stop directly behind the other. And I'm showing you here the streetcar of the type that used to run along Tremont Street. They'd arrived there, horse-drawn omnibuses had arrived early in 1835. That, too, contributed to the demise of this street as a residential neighborhood because with the regular routes came traffic, noise, and, as one historian has put it, a rich equine flavor and swarms of flies. So the cacophony is both oral and visual because the carriages were rolling advertisements, they had billboards on them, and by 1853, rails had been laid along the street to improve the irregular path of the omnibuses, and that allowed horses to pull greater weights at improved speed, and the tracks were further expanded along Tremont Street in 1873. The congestion, here's one of the horse cars again. The congestion along Tremont Street, where cars were scheduled to run every eight minutes, we all know what that's like, every eight minutes. Um, it was the worst traffic in the city, and local wags proclaimed that it was faster to walk on the roofs of the streetcars than to be a passenger riding within them. In an effort to improve service and avoid the expense of maintaining all of those horses, which need to be fed and housed, electrified cars began to take their place in 1889. But the bottlenecks continued for almost a decade until the 1897 completion of what we all know, the first subway line in the United States, which ran directly underneath Hassam's street scene. What else is new? We see another aspect here, the electrification of the city. Hassam is showing us um, arc lights, electric arc lights, which you can identify by their cone-shaped shades, their very tall poles, and the uh, light that actually hung beneath them. Boston streets had been illuminated first with oil lamps for years, and in fact since 1829. And as night fell, lights became increasingly bright, making the streets different, making them no longer an obstacle course, but an easily navigable thoroughfare. And street lights began to mark the most secure neighborhoods, places where that brightness inhibited evil deeds, or in Ralph Waldo Emerson's words, gaslight is the best nocturnal police. But Hassam shows the next phase, electric lights, as I said, recognizable by their form. And they were incredibly much brighter than gas lights, uh, increasing the area of illumination. And, and the tall poles actually helped to take that achingly bright light source away from your field of vision as you walked on the street. Public. Uh, opinion really favored the expanded use of electricity as soon as it was practicable, um, encouraged by local demonstrations by the electric companies of the new technology, including the first baseball game played under arc lights at Nantastic, Nantasket Beach in 1880. You see that? Everybody wants one. 
Proposals were soon underway to build Edison plants in Boston that could provide power grids to be able to have both public and domestic lighting. And Tremont Street was in the vanguard in the 1880s. As one contemporary newspaper reported, anyone who came out of one of the gas-lit side streets felt as though he were stepping unexpectedly out of a half-dark passage into a room filled with daylight. So here, even at dusk, even in a darkness of a Boston winter, a well-dressed woman could tarry with children. And what about those women? Well, they are fashionable, to be sure, wearing appropriate garments for walking. And I show you contemporary examples here. On the left, Frank Duvenek's uh, image of his wife, Lizzie Boot Duvenek, from 1887 in the Cincinnati Museum. In the middle, a fashion page from Harper's Magazine in 1885. And at right, another 1885 view of a small girl, Jeanne Kiefer, by Ferdinand Knopf in the Getty Museum. All of these women wearing appropriate garments for walking. They were discouraged from dressing to attract notice on the street <laughs> by etiquette manuals, which recommended that showy costumes and brilliant colors were considered inappropriate, too likely to solicit attention and to draw unwanted responses from men. <laughs> Instead, quiet colors, like the brown tones of Hassam's woman's dress, were recommended. In fact, an 1878 etiquette manual devoted a whole chapter to conduct in the street, offering advice for ladies walking or taking public transportation while reminding and warning them of the performative nature of their activities. And I quote, a lady's conduct is never so entirely at the mercy of critics because never so public as when she is in the street. Her dress, her carriage, her walk will all be exposed to notice. Every passerby will look at her, if it is not only, if, even if only for one glance. Every unladylike action will be marked, and in no position will a dignified ladylike deportment be more certain to command respect. One rule you must lay down with regard to a walking dress, it was never be conspicuous. You don't want to be taken for one of those other kinds of women who walk in the street, that's for sure. Hassam uses these women and, and the children to tame his urban scene, to make it sentimental, to domesticate it, to make it safe, feminizing a modern urban setting. And the streetlights and the well-lit shops helped to make this commercial neighborhood an acceptable place for women to walk freely. But it wasn't technology alone that made that happen. Women were changing, too. And I show you our uh, wonderful portrait, a self-portrait by Ellen Day Hale, also from 1885. Boston, as you may know, was particularly famous for its female reporters and activists so often satirized in fiction and in the press for their intellect, their self-single-minded uh, dedication, and their public efforts to champion various causes. Their behavior provided Henry James with the subject for his novel, The Bostonians, which was published in the Century Magazine in 1885, at just the moment Hassam began his ambitious picture. 
Boston women, as you know, met with remarkable success in health, in welfare, education, politics, sports, dress reform, historic preservation, and so on and so on. Another of their accomplishments, though, was a very noticeable public shift. The new ease and comfort with which an unaccompanied woman of good character could navigate the city. The freedom to travel around, to go about where and in whatever way we please, as the etiquette advisor Florence Howe, whose mother was Julia Ward Howe, put it, that was praised as a hallmark of American society that differentiated it from Europe. Howe wrote, how great would be the surprise of a foreigner of distinction if he should happen to catch a glimpse of the interior of a Boston horse car in the evening. If you should tell him that those groups of ladies without any attendant cavalier belong to Boston's best and that the friendly horse car would carry them safe and unmolested to their very doors, he would scarcely believe the testimony. With rules of behavior and dress needed to be observed, Howe added, thanks to the Puritans and the horse cars, women of Boston had considerable latitude. Well, opposite the physical and social developments that Hassam represents, the common is unchanged at the right of the canvas. Then, as now, it was a place of respite and play, offering amusements even in winter. It was a great coasting center, and I'm showing you here an illustration of a sledding competition on the common, and also attracted people who sold apples, like Apple Mary, who you see here in the stereograph at the bottom, or food to feed the pigeons with. And it boasted illuminated pathways that Hassam carefully studied at around this same time, as you can see here in his view of the common on a winter evening from 1885 in the Florence Griswold Museum. He balanced the glow of lights and the geometry of the pedestrian pathways with the glitter of new, new fallen snow. Unlike the work of, for example, Jean Béraud, the French uh, painter of city scenes with whom Hassam was often compared, Hassam's view of Boston at twilight maintains an intimate connection with nature. His deliberately muted palette with its gentle harmonies of rusts and browns recall the pensive sunsets of his colleagues, the tonalists, like George Fuller, whose afterglow from 1884 at Phillips Andover you see here. Um, they didn't use the bright colors of the Impressionists, but instead favored these uh, poetic views of nature that follow very much the region's devotion to the writings of Thoreau and Emerson. And galleries and exhibition halls were full, full, full of paintings depicting twilights and dusks. And Hassam borrows that mood in Boston Common at twilight, taking the rusty glow of their autumn leaves and turning them into the russet brick buildings of the city. He lost nothing of those delicate harmonies of color, but he did something distinctly different. 
uh, avoiding their traditional rural subject matter to instead create a rural, uh, uh, I'm sorry, an urban meditation, one that looks not only to the past but also to the future. Well, what happened to Hassam and his picture after he finished it? He showed it in Boston, in New York, in Louisville, Kentucky. It never found a buyer. In 1886, he had a solo exhibition in Boston at Noise and Cobb Gallery. You see the catalog here on the left. And he wanted to sell everything in his studio to raise money so that he could spend more time in Paris, which he did, as you can see from the MFA's Grand Prix Day on the right. Well, Boston Common at Twilight was apparently sold to somebody named Daniels. We only know that because the MFA's copy of the exhibition catalog is annotated. Hassam went off to France and made a lot of pictures of Paris that are very uh, much in keeping with his view of Boston city architecture. When he got back from France, he settled uh, in New York, although he continued to come to Boston, and he never gave up painting the city. As you can see in his Charles River and Beacon Hill on the left in the MFA's collection from the 1890s. Again, uh, Storrow Drive now is what you're seeing on the left. And at the right, a view of New York's Washington Square from about the same time. Hassam quickly aligned himself with the Impressionist movement. You can see his palette brightens considerably. And he also continues to show the characteristic old buildings of New England, like these churches on the left in Old Lyme and on the right in Newport. At Appledore on the Isles of Shoals, Hassam produced watercolors and oils that are arguably among the finest works of his career, freely painted brightly hued, some of the most accomplished American Impressionist pictures. Works like the one now on your right, which was exhibited in Boston, uh, somebody said it was like taking off your sunglasses to come into the gallery and see a work like that. But nevertheless, he continued painting urban architecture for the rest of his life, often in wet weather, or in snowy weather, as you can see on the left in this picture from the Brooklyn Museum, or from an elevated vantage point, such as the one on your right showing Union Square in the spring. His interest in surface pattern, in geometry, and in new vantage points is interesting because they're much more modern than you would expect an artist like Hassam to embrace. He reinvigorated himself as a painter in the in 19-teens with views like this one of a characteristic American architectural scene of skyscrapers mixed with the flags and sunlight of Impressionism. And what became of this early painting? Well, we have no idea who Daniels was. I haven't been able to figure it out. But soon the painting was purchased by somebody named Samuel Appleton. He owned it by about 1893. And his daughter remembered that her father had it hanging in his office for a good many years before he had a house large enough to accommodate it. Appleton, whose obituary you see on the left, had been left unemployed and penniless at age 40 after the 1872 fire destroyed his business. But he prospered 
from the event, becoming a leading provider of a new kind of insurance coverage, employer's liability insurance. And you see on the right the Appleton Building in Boston, which was named after him down in, uh, on Kilby Street in the financial district. Appleton left the painting to his daughter, who immediately lent it and then soon gave it in 1931 to the MFA. Hassam died in 1935, and his reputation fell victim both to changes in taste and perhaps also to the conservatism and somewhat um, public irritability of Hassam's late life. His work, along with many of the other American Impressionists was soon characterized as derivative, in the words of one important uh, survey text writer, a backwater, um, and uh, really fell out of favor. And in the eight, 19, 1970s, when the study of American art was still really in its infancy, and the MFA had no curator of American paintings, and of all the American paintings people cared about, Impressionism was at the bottom of the heap. Hassam's painting was lent to adorn the office of Mayor Kevin White, where it served as a trophy illustration of the city. And I love this photograph at the lower right of Kevin White with Queen Elizabeth in his office with the Hassam behind them. Perhaps its peaceful vision of Boston was a sort of political statement for Mayor White, who was, of course, trying to project a sense of harmony and calm during a moment of extreme political and racial turbulence. Today, in our galleries, Hassam's Boston Common at Twilight has become one of the museum's most iconic works and a popular favorite. I'm told the best-selling postcard in the shop. <laughs> Can't go wrong with that. As John Updike wrote in 2004 in an essay later collected uh, in uh, book form, he said, Hassam's Boston Common at Twilight is perhaps his masterpiece and certainly one of the most loved paintings in the Boston Museum. Divided exactly in half like a book, it crowns onto its left-hand page the tall buildings and seething traffic of Tremont Street and the pedestrians treading a path worn in the snow at the common's edge. The right half holds only a few small birds, a tapering row of benches and another of elms, and a snow-covered expanse. Updike concluded that in Hassam's best work, they take fire from the snow-shrouded moment in which we feel nature infiltrating and overshadowing a metropolis whose lights, nevertheless, continue to burn. Well, the lights do continue to burn, but Hassam's Tremont Street really didn't last long. And if you want to put your hats on and walk down there after this lecture, you will see this. One building replacing the other along Tremont Street in a continual state of metamorphosis. Although it will be clear from any recent stroll or your stroll later that a butterfly never emerged from this chrysalis. None of the buildings Hassam depicted remains. 
Even some of the newest structures visible in his painting were replaced in the 1890s and early 1900s, and since then they too have been supplanted by even newer construction. Today, luxury condominiums have brought well-to-do residents back to the site of Colonnade Row. Nevertheless, people still hurry along Tremont Street or saunter down its promenade. And when the reddish sun sets early in December, Hassam's image remains, I think, in all our mind's eye. Traffic still lines the street. The lamps still begin to glow. The trees still become stark silhouettes. And bundled pedestrians make their way along the edge of the common. To my mind, and I hope for all of you, Hassam's painting really brings together past and present. We can feel the cold and damp, hear the sound of the city's afternoon rush, see the juxtaposition between a built environment and an open space. And the magic might last for only a minute, but in that instant, I think art really does suspend time. Thank you. Thank you.